Hi everyone, welcome to another episode of Medical Dads. It's been a crazy couple of weeks here in North America and the world with the coronavirus or COVID-19 taking over all discussion of everything. Stu and I have been talking about what we should do with our show during this time period. So we're going to get on the task of recording more episodes and spending more time breaking down the coronavirus as the days pass. But we also have a repository of some old episodes that have yet to air, and we were debating what to do with it, whether people might want to hear more about parenting or babies and other talk in the midst of this crisis. And we've decided that probably the best thing to do is for us to slowly put some of these episodes up to give people a bit of a distraction from what's going on in their regular lives. Because even though we're stuck at home, we're still parenting, we're still homeschooling, we're still cooking every meal for our families. So it's truly a crazy time to be in medicine and a crazy time to be a parent. We hope you enjoy the episode. Welcome to the Medical Dads Podcast, a parenting podcast by two dads who happen to be medical doctors. I'm one of your co-hosts, Dr. Stuart Harmon, a pediatric emergency room physician and father of four from Ottawa, Ontario. I want to be in the podcast. Daddy, do you know what you're doing? Can I play a game on your computer? Daddy, where's mommy? And I'm your other co-host, Dr. David Shu, a family doctor from Toronto, Ontario. Welcome aboard. Dr. Shu. Dr. Harmon, welcome back for another episode of Medical Dads. How are you doing over there? I'm good. I'm good. Another evening recording. Oh, brutal, brutal. So I, I got the idea to do this episode because I recently listened to the last newborn episode. And I don't know how many people out there are actually keeping track of these episodes. But the last time we did newborn episode, the big thing that I started with was how tired I felt that day. And it felt right. like I had just looked after a newborn, right? And I don't know why I think it's like fate, but today I feel the same way. <laughs> like last night, I think maybe my son knows that we're about to do a podcast on newborns. So he wanted me to relive this again. We get him to bed and at about 530 in the morning, like it's pitch black. We hear him shuffling about upstairs. Right. And my wife gets up to go look for him and is like, he's, he's complaining about a bandaid. Like he wants a bandaid. <laughs> Right. And he, my son is like really into band-aids. I'm, I'm sure most parents can relate to this. At some age, kids are fascinated by having a band-aid on their skin. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So he's got this band-aid on. And I think my wife gave him two band-aids at bedtime. But sometimes what will happen is the, the band-aids will fall off. Right. So if he wakes yeah. up in the middle of the night and sees that the band-aids are missing, it's a crisis. <laughs> so he's calling for the band-aids. My wife comes back to the, our room and it's like he's whining about band-aids. And I'm like, oh, I got to go try to get him back to sleep because we're all going to be tired if he doesn't like, you know, fall asleep quickly. I go into his room and he's lying there whining about band-aids. He's like making these like whining noise, like, right. I'm like, yo, go to sleep. He's like, band-aid. <laughs> I'm like, there's no band-aid. Go to sleep. He's like, band-aid. I'm like, you are not going to get a Band-Aid right now. Like, that's the rule. As a medical dad laying down the law, we're not going to reward bad behavior at 5.45 in the morning by giving you exactly what you want. I'm like, you are not getting a Band-Aid right now. But if you go to sleep, you will get a Band-Aid when you wake up in the morning, right? Which somehow makes sense to me at that point in time. And then he, he's lying there and he says, 
don't want small band-aid want big band-aid <laughs> right in that voice i'm like oh man you want a big band because his thing is he likes the regular size band-aid you know when you buy like a little box of band-aids and like 15 of them are normal and then 15 of them will be tiny and they're these tiny right. useless band-aids that no one ever uses or they fall off your finger after two seconds after he got addicted to using band-aids my mother-in-law took all the mini band-aids that no one ever uses them and gave it to him as a present <laughs> right but he now he's clued in that those are not real band-aids so he wants the real thing <laughs> instead so long story short finally get him to sleep but then i go back to my room it's it's like and i can't fall asleep anymore like this whole band-aid thing is keeping me up i probably get another 15 minutes of sleep so i showed up at work today completely wiped out thinking yeah. i'm and i'm thinking like you know normally you're like okay i gotta get through the work day i have eight hours of work to get through and then get home and have dinner and th tonight i'm like i got eight hours of work then i go home deal with the kids for a couple hours and then try to power through until nine o'clock when we're gonna record a podcast about <laughs> newborn care so i'm not gonna get to sleep for another like 13 14 hours from this <laughs> that was my day uh you know as you're telling that story i'm having like deja vu about <laughs> one or more than my one of my kids like crying because they want a band-aid <laughs> at a time when I don't want to or can't give them a band-aid <laughs> and yeah I, this medical dad may have actually uttered the words um, you don't need a band-aid <laughs> but if you don't cut that out you're gonna <laughs> I'm sure they didn't catch the double entendre the kids only heard the first part of that sentence anyway <laughs> Uh, maybe that just gets drowned out with all the other threats I always make. Oh, <laughs> don't fall through on. <laughs> but his thing was he didn't even have a cut. Right? We're looking at his hand. We're like, he has a little bit of a rash. It's got a little itchy. So he thinks yeah. that Band-Aid will cure eczema, apparently. <laughs> right? So my wife has like slapped a little bit of cream on that spot and then put a Band-Aid over it. I don't, I, yeah. I don't actually know if an occlusive dressing is a good idea for eczema. It probably isn't. But anyways, whatever it takes to get our kids to bed at night. <laughs> no, I think an occlusive dressing is fine, actually. Probably. Probably but, but, seals the moisture in. Yeah. A Band-Aid that falls off at five in the morning, however, does not seal the moisture. <laughs> Indeed. Indeed. And then he woke up this morning. So to finish, finish that story for real, like at around 730, I, uh, we, we're, I'm already in the kitchen making breakfast and bleary eyed. And I hear boom, 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 boom. Like he, he raced up, right? Bolted out of bed, went right to the closet where the Band-Aids are stored and is busy trying to get his Band-Aids. He comes downstairs. We look at him. He's got both of the band-aids from last night still on his hand, right? So I don't know what he was fussy about. He wanted an extra band-aid apparently at that point. Well, a, a kid who goes to sleep crying about something they want will wake up uh, and their first words will be like them asking for that thing they fell asleep thinking about. Oh, amazing. Amazing the things that motivate children. But yes, the lack of sleep at night and the being tired and off your game during the day, that is the segue into just having a newborn indeed once again medical dads are back where that all began so what were some of the things about newborns that we didn't get to last time that we really wanted to hit on this time well i thought i thought we should change the flavor of the episode because last time we talked a little bit about some of the run-of-the-mill stuff that every parent sees right like we talked about breastfeeding we talked about your baby's poops we talked a little bit about feeding and like how often to feed and stuff like that today i thought we would talk a little bit about some of the more like 
I thought we would talk about some of the more controversial parts of newborn care, which is the parts where usually people clash with their parents, right? When, okay. when the parents come in with these like weird suggestions of what you should do for your baby or for your mom or for dad in the postpartum yeah. period, there's a lot of this kind of weird cultural like advice that's being bandied about when people have yeah. children. And people don't really talk about it too much in medical school, but we see it a lot as patients and also as parents. So yeah. I thought we would try to dispel some common myths that mostly pertain to Chinese people and babies, <laughs> but to all cultures and babies. Okay. So one of the things like being Chinese, I didn't really have a really, really good sense of like what actually happens when you have a baby in the Chinese culture until I became a family doctor. And I started to see some of this odd behavior because most of my life as a guy, like you don't talk about this stuff with your parents, right? Your parents might mention yeah. something about like, oh, we did this when you were born, but it just goes way over your head because it's not right. relevant to us as men, right? And then I started working. So one, I remember one of the, one patient I saw like back in the day, like a young parent comes in, she's, she's got a one month old, but she's feeling unwell, right? And she's got all these aches and pains and she's like, I want to do a full checkup. And she's like, but I, I didn't know any better. I'm like, okay, you want to check some labs? Okay, I ordered a cholesterol. I ordered a blood sugar. Then the labs come back and the cholesterol is like sky high, right? Like triglycerides yeah. are like five times normal and the cholesterol is way high. The sugar is up. Everything's up, right? I bring her back. I'm like, what is going on? What are you doing? What are you eating, right? And then it turns uh, out she's like, oh, I'm just doing the normal Chinese thing, right? So there's this thing that Chinese people do after you deliver a baby, uh, not uh, not people, Chinese moms, right? After okay. you've had a baby, you're supposed Wait, to- Wait, are you saying that Chinese moms are not people? <laughs> no, I'm not saying that, but some of okay. this behavior is very odd. <laughs> so, yeah. so basically after you have a baby, you're supposed to eat special food for about a month. In Chinese, there's a term for it. It's called zuo yuzi. It literally means sitting out McDonald's. the month. Sitting out, it's not McDonald's. Right. So this month involves number one, you don't leave the house. So you have to stay in your own house for the whole month. And then they okay. feed you a specific diet of foods that Chinese people believe is healthy for the mom to recover from the arduous process of childbirth. Right. Okay. And to prepare you for breastfeeding. Right. So yeah. there's a long list of foods that you got to make. And these aren't these are weird foods. Right. But they tend to be really high in fat and very high in, in grease content and lots of cholesterol. So like you're eating a lot of eggs and you're eating yeah. a lot of pig's feet. I don't know if you guys eat pig's feet. It's like the, the hawk of the pig. It's like this really fatty meat. Okay, yeah, we don't tend to eat a lot of pig feet here. <laughs> so they stew it in like a vinegar soy sauce mixture and then yeah. they, they start stewing this before the baby's born. And then once it's, I think actually that particular dish you don't eat until after the first month. But basically there's this idea of these, all these high, like protein, high caloric intake foods. And you eat a ton of it because you're trying to replace all the nutrition that you lost giving birth <laughs> to this kid. So these people come in with this crazy cholesterol. So quickly I learned my lesson as a GP, which is never check the cholesterol of any Chinese person after they've had a baby. Because you don't want to see, you don't want to look for something that you don't want to find. Oh, man. I mean, that's one of those things that at least you could understand the logic behind it. I suppose. I, 
I mean, just if the, if the idea is that, you know, you used up a lot of energy having the baby and you're using up a lot of energy breastfeeding. Right. Or producing breast milk that maybe you want, uh, I don't know, a heart attack to go <laughs> along with it. So, so to, to that point, like when my wife was having our first baby, like our, nearing the time that the baby's going to be delivered, the, the grandmas and the older generation started coming around talking about these food items, right? Yeah. And because we're living in North America now and a lot of the true traditions are lost, like I'm sure if we lived in Asia, like the grandmas and stuff would be whipping this stuff up in their own kitchen. But <laughs> here, right. a lot of this stuff's kind of lost. So now there's an industry. You can hire like a Chinese doula who will make these dishes oh for you, gosh. right? For money, <laughs> right? Yeah. And so I actually went and did some research and asked a friend of mine who hired one of these people. It turns out it's they you pay them an hourly rate. They will cook yeah. your meals and come to your house, do some light cleaning and help you look after the baby for the first few weeks after the baby's born. So it's like a, well, it's like a, like a nanny, but they only do like yeah. the first month. Right. And they're so-called okay. experts, but they're completely uncertified and have, <laughs> they have no, <laughs> they have no credentials like, whatsoever, except that they look Chinese. Um, I mean, I would actually love to have somebody who could come in for the first month and like do nothing but kind of pamper my wife, help with the baby, you know, maybe clean up around the place and, you know, hopefully I could eat some of the leftover fat that they're cooking up. <laughs> well, in theory, but, it does sound great, right? Yeah. Except, well, there's like... Then the person may have no idea what they're actually doing. That's the part <laughs> exactly, that concerns me. Exactly. Like, I, I further did some research and there's, there's a bunch of articles in like Canadian newspapers talking about yeah. this phenomenon because it's starting to get more popular. Like here yeah. in Toronto... There's a community health like team called Care First. They provide home yeah. care for seniors and for other specific situations. And one of yeah. the services they now offer is a registry of Chinese doulas that you can hire. And this is sort of, I mean, the doula is not funded through the ministry, but the organization that's promoting it is, right? Yeah. So it's kind of nutty, yeah. kind of nutty, if, especially as I tell you some of the stuff that they do, right? <laughs> I, bet it, I bet they get paid like a lot more for that month than you would normally pay uh, like a house cleaner or a, or a nanny or someone like that. A little bit more, a little bit more than yeah. the basic, the basic nanny. The person I asked quoted $17 an hour for that service, which is a little more than, than the, than the minimum. And are they kind of live in with you? Uh, there's a variety. Like some people do choose to have live in and then the, yeah. then that person will get up and feed the baby at night. So you don't have to. Okay. <laughs> so there's all sorts of little yeah. perks to it. But I wonder what they're feeding the baby at night. <laughs> at the same time, yeah, you don't know much about these people, right? And so, yeah. I mean, I don't even know where to start. There's so many odd things that happen. Let's, let's just talk about the food part a little bit more. So when we had our first baby, we did hire someone. She wasn't yeah. exactly a Chinese doula. Like she didn't even pretend to have fake certification, <laughs> but she was more like we hired her to sort of help us around the house, but do the th stuff that you were just talking about, right? With yeah. our first kid. And so she's like, I don't worry. Like I've done this many times before. I know what types of foods. It's not that complicated. So when the okay. baby gets born, like I come home, I meet her like on the, on the first day we're at home. And then she's like, okay, this is the grocery list. You need to go buy these items because this is the stuff that's good for your wife to eat in the postpartum period. I look at the list. There's uh, 
baby carrots, baby bok choy, <laughs> baby spinach, baby Chinese broccoli. <laughs> I'm like, is there really a science to this? <laughs> or is it just every item that has the B word in it is good for baby? <laughs> like, uh, it's important you get some baby bell cheese. <laughs> Yeah, I, I'm not joking. This is an actual thing. And then, uh, you, you know, what? When, when you're a medical dad or if you're just any dad and you've just yeah. been through the rigors of being in the delivery room, surviving a couple nights without sleep, trekking your wife and your newborn to the medical clinic for a weight check, like you're exhausted. So when someone tells you to buy baby whatevers, you go to the yeah. grocery store and you buy baby whatevers and whatever you can find as soon as you can. Right. And because you're a medical dad, forget about the price. Just pay for this stuff. <laughs> like I couldn't find any baby carrots. They had real carrots. <laughs> and yes, I could just, you know, cut them and peel them until they become baby carrots. But but the the doula said it has to be has to say baby on the packaging. Yes. I, I'm exaggerating a little bit. Not every item on the list said baby. There were some specific items. So there's certain melons, there's certain like there's certain things in the Chinese grocery store that they specifically select. So okay. we did some of this stuff, but like we're, we're kind of in between, like as a family, we're kind of, we're not fully Westernized, but we're not fully Easternized either. We're kind of in the <laughs> middle, like we're halfway through the immigration process at this point. <laughs> so we kind of want to eat some of these foods, but at the same time, we kind of recognize some of this looks really unhealthy. <laughs> so, so this, th the big thing that a lot of people have is this pot of like, we talked about it the, the the pig's feet right yeah which is apparently boiling on your stove for for over a month yeah so what happens is you take these pig's feet you soak it in like this vinegar sweet sauce and then you okay. you, you boil it and then uh, you don't put it in the fridge because the vinegar acts as like uh what is it, a preservative right okay so then every day you boil it again <laughs> right just to keep it keep recooking it and kill the germs <laughs> then you're supposed to eat it i believe at about the one at about the one month mark so when you're when you're when your baby's one month old now that yeah. now that pork's been sitting on the countertop for a month soaking in vinegar now's the time to eat it right and you're supposed to eat this at like every meal which is a lot of fat right like most most women i know and medical uh, doctor women i know like are not eating a ton of fat unless they're on like the keto diet right and suddenly they have to eat pig's feet like at every meal and then the the other item that they cook with this is they take eggs so you hard boil uh, eggs soak it in vinegar and then because the vinegar is like dark colored the egg comes out like dark right it's a marinated okay. egg right but yeah. because the sauce is so sweet the egg has like a sweet and vinegary kind of smell and taste right okay and so so we went through this several times right and then what happens is there's so much pig's feet in that pot there's no way that my wife can eat it all right so who do you think yep. who do you think's eating this stuff Right. It's the dad. It's the medical dad is now being told, just eat the, help eat the face feet. Right. That's that's your role. See, the, the reason that you have to eat this particular dish at a month is because, you know, it's about like after you've had a newborn for a month that you are like so tired <laughs> that you're not I don't know if you're coming or going. And then the, the concept of eating like juiced pickled feet uh, like, or pickled pig's feet or uh, that doesn't seem so crazy because you're just too exhausted to really realize like wait a minute i've just been eating meat that's been sitting on my stove for like a month in vinegar <laughs> it, totally and then and then the thing is like like i'm a real big eggs guy like i love eggs 
And in, for Chinese people, there's a kind of egg. We call it rudan. It, you take an egg and you and you marinate with some spices and some soy uh, sauce. So it, so it's a hard-boiled egg, but it looks brown, but it's salty and very delicious if you make it properly. Like if you use like the 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 the, the marinade that you get from like roasting a beef or something and then cook uh, the egg in that, it's quite good. Uh, these eggs, these postpartum eggs look like those eggs. They're brown also, but they don't taste like it. They're like sweet and gingery and whatever, right? And yeah. so I went through it with my first kid. Like people uh, made the eggs, so I ate them. I went through it with the second kid. People, you know, made the eggs. We ate them, right? Uh, Last year, my sister had a baby and my mom uh, made the same dish, like pig's feet and eggs, all right? But my sister's <laughs> allergic to eggs. So there's nobody eating those eggs. So guess who has to eat those eggs? <laughs> Once Wait. again, comes around to me. Like, I don't know what my role as medical brother-in-law <laughs> means that I got to eat these eggs. I'm at the office opening my lunchbox as my mom packs me lunch a couple days a week. I'm like, looking at the egg, I'm like, is this one of those eggs again? No, it's another one of these eggs again. <laughs> Now, hold on. Like I was trying to be open-minded here, thinking that you know, you know, maybe there's just something to the idea of like these are foods that over I don't know thousands of years of Chinese experience, people figured out that uh, this somehow helps the mom to eat these <laughs> foods. But if your mom knows that your sister is allergic to eggs and can't eat them, and she's still cooking these eggs, <laughs> then is she just cooking them because she believes there's some kind of magical power <laughs> that you don't have to eat the eggs; they just have to be cooked. <laughs> And, and consumed by someone. That's and related. That brings... That's a, as long as a relative eats the eggs, we're okay. Because <laughs> yeah, now now we're gone into the very uh, the the very hard to explain, very unscientific territory here. Oh, there's a lot of that. All right. So, like, that's that's the example of these myths. And I think I think most of us, even if even if you are not Chinese. When you have a baby, it's such a mysterious and like important time of life that all these myths suddenly come together at one time, right? You're under stress. <laughs> the baby's doing stuff that you don't understand. Your doctor doesn't give you any useful advice because your doctor is kind of giving you just the textbook answer for stuff. So yeah. suddenly you have no answer and you start employing all these myths, right? You start, you start doing this nutty stuff because you think that's going to help everything. Uh, I mean, you know, what if we found out after all this time that, uh, like, uh, drinking this the the vinegar from these that, that, that these pigs feet have been soaking in for a month at a time, <laughs> that people discovered after some study that that it actually impairs your vertical growth. <laughs> <laughs> that the the only side effect of this stuff uh, is that when the mother like eats it and then proceeds the baby, it makes it makes the baby's hair stay black. <laughs> Well, a lot of the stuff, like a lot of times, like you'll meet like the younger generation, like there's a lot of younger generation who are more Westernized and they're very dismissive of this stuff. Right. So they're like, yeah. you know what? We don't need to do this. Like, you know, Canadians don't do this. White people don't do this. Why do we have to do this? And then that's when your mom looks at you and it's like, white people's bodies are different than your body. Right. You're Chinese. This stuff has worked for thousands of years. Now shut up and drink the soup. Right. <laughs> <laughs> your body is different than white people's body and this drinking this soup is the only way to keep it that way <laughs> you want to wake up as a white guy tomorrow don't eat your pig's feet <laughs> i mean there's a whole bunch of other stuff that go around this first month thing right so uh, one of the things is the like i mentioned that the wife has to stay home right so right. technically if you really follow the letter of the rule you're not to leave the house ever 
during that first month. Leaving the house is courting long-term <laughs> physical illness, right? Long-term chronic Le- leaving disease. Leaving the house or the property? <laughs> leaving the indoors of your house. You have to stay indoors <laughs> oh, for the whole month. So you know how like in medical school, I don't know if you learned this, but we, we learned that at one point, well, we went to school together. We must have learned this together, which is that... We went to school together, and there's a lot of things that you seem to have learned that I didn't. And there's actually a lot of things we didn't learn, so I really don't know where I picked this up. But do you remember learning that at some point that if you see a newborn baby, like, you know when the newborn comes for the baby visits, they come in at, like, first week of life, second week of life, like, all those visits, that if, if the mom is not present, then that's a red flag that something's wrong with the mom and she's clinically depressed. Right. Or you have to ask questions like, where is the mom? Because that's not a normal Canadian parenting situation. Right. Well, <laughs> okay. did you ever learn that? Uh, like, I, I definitely remember learning to screen for things like depression in the mom. Right. And to ask her the questions about like how her breasts are doing right. and how her but bum is doing. What are you supposed to do but if the mom's not that. there? Is there did, like I remember being told at some point that this is just a very odd situation and you should ang- inquire how the mom is doing because it's not normal. Right. Because it's like a risk factor for stuff. I'm telling you, if you see a Chinese mom in the clinic, that's abnormal. They're never there. (laughs) They do not attend these first month visits. So the, the thing about Chinese parenting is that the dad always brings the kid. If they're really traditional, the dad is the one coming to the clinic with the baby. And then... And then the baby visits become utterly useless because as we know, dads cannot do anything with children. So the baby will come in with the dad and I'll be like, okay, so how's the baby doing? How's, how are they eating? It's like, I'm not sure. How's the poop? I'm not sure. Right. There's no answers to anything. And like, and, and, and the mom is just not present. And then I learned at some point to accept that, okay, this is actually the normal. This is actually the normal. Well, it does seem to set the dad up for uh, what he'll be like in the future when I see him in the emergency department, bring his kid in for other things. Because, <laughs> I mean, just as a, as a generalization, not to describe every dad, but there is a tendency amongst dads to sometimes show up at the emergency department with the kid and you kind of ask him what happened. And the dad doesn't actually know because he wasn't there. Um, <laughs> like he, he just came home from work and then the wife said, well, you better bring the kid to the hospital. And the only reason she isn't there herself is because she has to stay home and watch the other kids because... Right. Apparently the dad's incapable of doing that. And sometimes these dads like pull out a crumpled note from the wife <laughs> when you're like, so what's the story? And he's like, ah, yes, my wife said to ask you. And then they start reading off like a, a little timeline of what's happened the other day. Um, and then sometimes you ask them a question like, okay, well, you know, how many times has the kid uh, gone poop uh, so far? And they kind of look down at their three-year-old and they're like, uh, how many, uh, uh, gee, honey, how many times have you gone poop today? And the kid's like, uh, once. And you're like, okay. And you're like, but what I really need to know is, you know, are the poops normal? Are they hard? Are they small? And the dad's just like, honey, are they normal, hard, small? <laughs> the kid's like, normal. Dad turns to me, she says normal. And you're like, oh, oh boy. Well, let's see what we can do. Oh. Uh, now, that's not every dad, but uh, that seems to be more common in dads than in moms. Right, right. I mean, I mean, I'm being facetious. Many dads do a great job bringing their kids in. But in general, the moms just aren't, many of the moms are not there in that opening month. And it's yeah. because they're at home following this tradition. So for all of you out there, if you ever encountered a situation, do not be alarmed. This is normal behavior. And if you ever show up in the emergency department with your kid and nothing but a crumpled note, hey, at least you showed up, man. <laughs> you still have my respect. I mean, one of the th- questions that I thought of as I was thinking about this episode is where do these myths come from? Like these myths are like, 
like especially these Chinese ones. Like I thought yeah. about it, I'm like, I'm pretty sure these myths are all come from women because I don't think any man would sit there thinking up this stuff. Like, oh, we need to like eat pig's feet. Like, like first of all, I don't think dads know anything about <laughs> children or parenting or health. Right. Like if you need help with your car or you want to yeah. know who won last night's game, you ask dad. Yeah. Right. There's no way any of these myths are coming from dad. <laughs> I don't know. I, I kind of imagine maybe like, you know, a really long time ago where you sort of have your your village guy. That's kind of the medicine man. <laughs> um, uh, when people bring the baby to this medicine man. Yeah, he's a guy, so he doesn't really know any stuff you're supposed to do with a newborn. So he just makes up stuff. True, that's that actually is probably true, right? It's just some dude giving women orders about things he knows nothing about. That's right. Just sort of being like, "Oh, this problem will probably go away by itself." I'll tell you what: you start boiling some pig's feet, and in a month it'll be ready, and then you eat it, and that should help this problem go away. Oh man! So, sure enough, the baby's reflux is resolved by that. So, do you want me to tell you some more of these Chinese myths and just we just use up the whole hour talking about this? Well, let's do one that's that uh, um, that that I've heard outside of the Chinese culture that other listeners may have heard of before. Okay, uh, eating the placenta. Since we're talking about eating weird stuff anyway, <laughs> eating the placenta—that's a thing. I actually have not heard of that. You've never heard I've, of this before. I've heard of placenta being made into like a vitamin. Is that what you're talking about? No, no, this is like a thing of, uh, uh, this is like, I mean, probably within the last decade, but maybe even longer than that, this sort of, uh, I mean, I'm sure the practice may have existed earlier than that, but that it's sort of become in the Western world, something that people are hearing about and you're having patients sometimes want to do. Uh, patients want to keep the placenta and they eat it. Who's eating it? The parents? The parents. The parents eat the uh, placenta. What benefit could there possibly be from eating the placenta? I mean, I guess it's it's packed full of protein <laughs> and dried blood. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I, I when I was when I was thinking about this, I thought it's something that you would have probably heard of as well because it's it feels like uh it feels like that concept's not that new. Uh, I've seen I've seen like at the herbal shops or some of those like naturopath stores that they sell uh, like animal placenta. I did not know that human placenta was a thing. So, okay, some of the things that, like, uh, if you were to look up it online or something like that, some of the things that people believe eating the placenta will do, uh, increase your iron supply. Um, Which makes sense because there's dried blood in there. That's right. <laughs> that it will uh, improve your mood. I can't, can't imagine how it would improve my mood. <laughs> I mean, whatever you were worrying about before <laughs> is no longer a worry after you've eaten this thing because <laughs> you're only focused on how ill you're going to feel tomorrow. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I guess the only thing I would be worried about before I ate it was that I have to eat it. <laughs> like, guess what? I've eaten it. I'm not thinking about that anymore. I've got new problems. Oh, my goodness. It's supposed to give you more energy, supposed to boost the mom's milk production, higher skin elasticity. Wonderful, wonderful. All great things. If, if, if only life were so easy. <laughs> Yeah, so if you have another kid, what are you going to say when they when they uh, say to you, like, all right, sir, would you like to eat the placenta now? <laughs> oh, like, I feel like, like I feel like if I actually ate the placenta, this would just I, I feel like as a Chinese person and coming from a culture that's known for exotic eating habits as a culture, we should take a stand and not eat the placenta just so that we can say that we're not the only culture that does this. <laughs> 
I actually, when you started that sentence, I thought you were going to say, I could probably turn that placenta into something good with the right ingredients. Well, as you have said before, almost everything in the world tastes better with some sort of sauce. That's right. <laughs> Sprinkle some MSG in there and all that kind of stuff. Um, Just don't turn it into a dessert. Okay. Don't don't turn it into a Chinese dessert. So because Chinese desserts aren't good. So, so no placenta for me, thank we're you. We're in agreement that this advent, this odd eating stuff goes beyond just Chinese people, that all these cultures have some form of this type of stuff, I suppose. Uh, yeah, well, I'm not sure which culture originated the, uh, the placenta eating. Mm-hmm. Probably a culture that like, had very little access to food. Mm-hmm. You know, like, I suppose if you were really, really calorie-deprived, then you'd like, eat every single thing you could and not be picky. But <laughs> That's <laughs> just a theory. Luckily for me. That's just a theory. <laughs> that's a theory. <laughs> Luckily, in in the modern world, you you can say you know, oh, I'm 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 good for placenta, thank you. I'm saving my appetite for foreskin. Please don't save your appetite. <laughs> just, I'll just I'll just have a little nibble of the cord. So, getting away from food, there are other yeah. things that like other than eating or this, these odd things that we're told to eat or odd things moms are told to eat. There's odd things that Chinese moms are told to do after having a baby. So okay. not only are you eating this stuff and then you're also living at home for the month if you really follow it traditionally. But the next yeah. thing is you can't bathe. So bathing is off limits after you have a baby. And this is the one that really, really hits hard for people who are stuck between this east-west dichotomy because they really want to follow the Chinese tradition, but they also don't want to smell. And this is the hardest yeah. one to keep. Like, this is the hardest, like, <laughs> vow to keep for the full month. But I do see now the logic behind the mom not leaving the house for a month. <laughs> indeed, indeed. It's a public safety thing, I think. <laughs> so they're not, they're not supposed to bathe. So you're not supposed to, like, shower with regular water. But after a few days, what you can do is you take ginger and you boil okay. ginger in water. Uh-huh. And then once you take this giant pot of boiled ginger water, let it cool down. And uh-huh. I've, I've been told it is very bad to add cold water. You don't want to cool it down quickly. So it's got to cool down naturally to room temperature. Then okay. the mom is supposed to sponge herself with the ginger water on her hair and on her body. Right. And, uh-huh. and my wife actually did this to clean her hair after the pregnancy. She did? <laughs> she, Why? Because it's supposed to be good for you. And she's, she reports N of one that it worked well. Like she felt really good after it. So there's something to this N of one. So, and so what, what, what point is she allowed to do, to do the ginger water hair wash? Well, uh, a couple days in, a couple days after you have the baby. Okay. You don't have to wait a month for that. It's, you could do that early on. You're not supposed to wash your hair or your body. So you'd wash both of these with this, with this ginger water. And you're supposed to do this throughout the month. So, yeah. I mean, oh, wait, hold on. So this is you, you. She has had no bath after going through the whole like uh, labor. Well, that's technically if you're really going to follow it. Yeah. You have no bath. Like it, it's not it, it's okay. <laughs> you have no bath. Well, yeah. I would imagine washing your hair with ginger water would feel really good after, you know, like going through all the like uh, sweating and stuff of of labor than not having any kind of bath for two days. Like washing your hair with toilet water would probably feel good at that point. <laughs> I. <laughs> 
<laughs> we did not follow like again our family is not strictly easternized we're a bit of a mix so we mixed yeah. in like regular bathing with ginger okay. water hair cleaning right okay. but some people really follow this right like i actually today in preparation for this episode i sat my receptionist down because i knew she followed every one of these things and i asked her about it and she said yes i stayed at home I smelled like ginger. My husband was sleeping in a different room for a full month. <laughs> that's, that's, that's what ginger water does to you. Uh, interesting. And so is there, a, um, is there supposed to be a rationale behind this? Does the ginger water like smell nice for the baby or make the baby calmer? Or? No, the, it's, it's for the mom. So the rationale of it is that according to traditional Chinese medicine, that the uh, ginger water, it brings the woman warmth. So there's this whole idea that after you have the baby and you uh, give birth, your body is really weak and frail. So then they're going to boost you up with all these things that bring your body heat. Because in ch traditional Chinese medicine, there's this hot, cold balance thing that you need, right? So okay. now that you're weakened, you need things that bring you heat. And ginger traditionally is one of these things that, I guess because it's spicy and like stuff, right? It, it's right. a drink of choice, right? In this situation. So if, if washing your hair and bathing in ginger is good for you, then wouldn't like washing your hair and bathing in wasabi be like really <laughs> no, no, good no, for no. you? That's a Japanese thing. Let's not mix Chinese and Japanese because that's going to confuse everybody. <laughs> All right. Well, what, what's a what's a traditional Chinese hot sauce? Yeah. So a lot of the a lot of the traditional a lot of this stuff actually comes from traditional Chinese medicine. I mean, we probably should say that at some point. Like, it's not <laughs> random these things. It's this yeah. whole idea of hot and cold. So even like the pig's feet. And these like really rich foods is supposed to be yeah. bringing your body up, right? Okay. Whereas some foods in Chinese medicine are considered cold. So like certain melons, like watermelon, like if you eat a lot of that, I guess it's supposed to, in theory, cool your body down. You could get really weak and faint type of thing. Okay. <laughs> well, I mean, so far of all the things we've talked about, uh, not uh, none of them are things where I could sort of say, yeah, oh well, yeah, this is, there's a clear... Uh, correlate that I could think of uh, in the literature of what we do know with with medicine that would explain why these things definitely are a good idea. But I also haven't heard anything that's that's so dangerous sounding mm -hmm. or so crazy that I'd be like, no, no, no one, no one should do that. Like, yeah, I suppose if people have been doing it for a really long time, uh, there might be something to it that we don't know about. Right. Like I could talk about some of the just in general other myths around babies or, or things that go around babies like. Uh, you know, there's that whole thing. They have a soft spot on the top of their head. Right. And that soft spot, you know, as, as you know, that that's that's a basically a hole where because the skull is separate bones, not one big bone. There's like a there's a open space between some of the bones right. that they call the fontanelle. Right. Um, so people know about that. But and people have been told, like, do not touch that, you know, <laughs> like do not touch that because that's a direct pathway to the baby's brain if you touch that the baby will die <laughs> uh, and so a lot of people just live in this fear of of, of even brushing their hand around that spot <laughs> whereas as part of a normal newborn exam is i press on that spot and see you know is it sunken in is it bulging i did not realize that people were that afraid of it i mean we're always kind of reluctant to push on it too hard because you do feel like the brain is right there and <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's, it's not just like exposed brain that's under there but uh <laughs> but, but yeah i mean you could do some damage if you decided to like you know like uh like hit it with a pen or something right but uh, uh but the idea that like when you're washing the head 
you have a good chance of accidentally touching that spot and then triggering like the self-destruct mechanism in the baby. <laughs> like that, you know, a fair number of people get that impression. And, mm-hmm. uh, I think it's a good opportunity to debunk that. Okay, that's a good one. Uh, the other thing I hear a lot about um, is uh, putting alcohol on the umbilical cord. Mm-hmm. You know, I think you get a lot of parents or like parents of the parents, so a lot of grandparents mm-hmm. are still telling them, oh, yeah, yeah, you know, you got to put alcohol on the, on the, on the cord. Right. And uh, although I don't know too many pediatricians kicking around now who still talk about that, there was a time when that's what pediatricians were telling patients to do. Right. It was the older, it was the older way of cleaning the cord, I think. That's right. That's right. Um, but then there was, you know, some good studies were done that showed that just just using regular water to just gently clean the cord is is quite sufficient. Mm-hmm. Um, but I have a few ideas about probably where the whole alcohol thing came from. You know, like uh, first of all, if you're living in a in a dirty place, like a place where like we are surrounded by like contamination, where hygiene is hard. Mm-hmm. Uh, and clean water is is not easily accessible. Right. But in that context, cleaning the cord with alcohol probably is a good idea. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and I I wonder too if you know part of the normal process of the umbilical cord coming off. It's like the body starts to think of the umbilical cord or recognize the umbilical cord as if it was like a foreign body, a piece of material that's in there that's not supposed to be there. Right. And so the immune system attacks it to get rid of it, right? And so you do sometimes get some pus around there and that pus can start to smell really bad. Mm-hmm. Um, so I wonder if that also like leads people to feel like, well, water is just not enough. You need to pour some alcohol in there or something. Well, I, what I learned from the parenting class was that if you actually dunk the baby underwater so that their umbilicus goes under the water, then it yeah. will smell really, really bad. So the, they're always saying, don't dunk a baby when the cord is still there. Just wipe it with water. Oh. So if you submerge it, the smell gets a lot worse. I've seen this happen in the clinic subsequent to this. Oh, you know, I don't think I ever really had heard that one before. That that makes sense because <laughs> just if the area is wet, yeah. then it makes it easier for stuff to grow in there. Right. Uh, certainly they do talk about like dry cleaning and dry care mm-hmm. is usually how you how they describe right. the ideal way to take care of the cord in the literature. Right, which makes sense because alcohol is a drying agent, I suppose, when you wipe yeah. it and stuff. I, I remember I read reading a bit about like the whole thing about the history of, of the umbilical cord cleaning. And uh, uh, there was a study that, uh, that showed that cleaning it with alcohol versus just doing sort of just dry care mm-hmm. um, has no difference in terms of like the like significant outcome. Mm-hmm. Like uh, it's just as clean either way. Right. But that with the alcohol group, it took two days longer for the cord to fall off <laughs> when they clean it with alcohol. Interesting. Interestingly. Interesting. Yeah. So it might be because it impaired the immune system response. Since you mentioned this topic of like the the head sunken in and the fontanelles, which is yeah. the, which is the name we give for that soft spot on the baby's head, the reason yeah. that the reason I thought of this topic actually originally for a podcast was because of a because of something that that my mom said the other day. That again, I, this is the last Chinese thing I'm going to say today. So <laughs> so there's this there's this thing in Chinese culture where most babies are expected to shave their head like as soon as possible within the first few weeks of life or first few months, ideally. And the idea of it is that once you shave the head and then, then the hair will grow back nice and thick and full. 
But if you don't do uh, this, the hair will be poor, right? So if you go bald 40 years later, you can thank your parents for not shaving your head at the time. And the reason this came up was we were at Chinese New Year and my nephew, who's about one, my nephew's grandma asked my mom, what should we do? Should we shave the head? And then my mom is like, yeah, you definitely should. Then she looks at me and is like, see them? They didn't shave their kids' hair and oh, look at no. their hair now. And I'm like, this... this like this has been a sore spot of my mom's like she's been she's been meant she whenever she has an opportunity to get a cheap shot in she has yeah. to mention the fact that i we we selectively cho we we chose to object conscientiously objected to having our kids heads shaven right uh, and she thinks that's the reason that they have a high forehead like the reason they have a high forehead is because this is genetic and it runs in our family wait she she thinks your kids have high foreheads. Right. And that in the now. long run their hair is not gonna be great because of this. But she but she shaved your head as a kid. Uh I don't think she did. <laughs> so I don't so think So why is she angry at you guys? No, because she didn't shave your because head. Because I think they did it for my sister, right? Okay. So now, just like the doula, there's this whole industry that exists that if you want your baby's head shaven, you can look in the Chinese like uh craigslist or something and hire oh, these gosh. dudes that come to your house and will <laughs> will bick razor your kid's head for you if you dare oh. right <laughs> and so at the time that we were considering this like i wasn't really considering it but the, the idea got tabled and i think yeah. it was my father-in-law he's like absolutely not like you're sending these people who could have hepatitis b into your that's house right. and they, if they cut the baby's head that's it <laughs> I'm sure you could go to any hair place and they would happily do that for you. I don't know. Would they on a, on a newborn soft baby's head? I don't I think so. You might have a big hair patch left where the fontanelle is. <laughs> Maybe. They might not be able to go to that. Best hair. of both worlds myths. <laughs> so, yeah. So that's another one of these things that we have in our culture, which is that shaving the hair will make it grow back better, which... I could see where this one comes from because you've heard of that saying, like if you shave off your eyebrow, it'll grow back yeah. like crazy. Like when you're a kid and you're at like summer camp, you're always afraid that the other guys in the in the cabin are going to come shave your eyebrows at night and you're, you're going to look like Frankenstein forever. I never went to summer camp and <laughs> now I don't regret it. Well, actually, that wasn't summer camp. I was trying to put a positive spin on it, but that actually happened to me in high school. I didn't want oh, a lot no, of episodes where we were going to talk about that episode again. <laughs> Oh man, stuffed in your locker with your eyebrows <laughs> shaved. So, uh, like, yeah, in general, if you have hair, like, like say when people's mustache grows in for the first time, right. it always looks horrible, right? right? Until you shave it, and then it looks, then it grows back more coarse. Mm. Um, but I don't really think that shaving your baby's head is likely to make it any better than just when that hair grows and they get their first haircuts or if they shave their head at any point. Uh, good luck. But Why don't you tell that to my mom and then we'll see how far that conversation goes. <laughs> I'll tell you what. You guys have another kid and I'll shave half that kid's head for you. <laughs> All right. And we'll leave the other half intact. And then we'll see what happens in 40 years if their kid has... 40 years. We'll see in a week. The two sides will look exactly the same. <laughs> well, uh, I guess we're getting towards the end of our time. You know, in preparation for the topic, I did uh, call my mom uh, and ask her if there was anything she could think of from Jamaica mm -hmm. that was kind of a like a, a funny thing, maybe shrouded in a bit of myth that people do with their babies or their kids. Right. So she gave me three things. 
Uh, one of them is specifically babies, and then the other two are, uh, are uh, I guess, just kids in general or people in general. So uh, one of them was for people who have, an, like, a, she called it a boil, if you have boils. Mm-hmm. And I was like, you know, I've heard the expression of boils, but, like, I've never actually s- diagnosed anyone as having boils. It's a pimple, uh, isn't it? Uh, yeah, that's, I guess that's what it means, right? Right. Because she was, she was saying, like, by boils, she's saying, like, you know, like an ingrown hair or like a, like a little abscess. Right. And she's saying what you do is you take a pepper leaf, you warm it up, and then you put it on top of the boil, and that helps it to burst. Mm-hmm. And that actually makes a lot of sense. Right. Because heat brings, brings these things to the surface of the skin. Yeah. Often if someone has a little abscess, if you just, like, put a hot washcloth on it, that'll help it to, like, uh, soften the skin and help it to start to drain. Um, so that one wasn't that spectacular. Uh the other one she was talking about was uh, for chicken pox. For chicken pox, you take uh, corn and you put it in a, like a frying pan and you parch it. Mm-hmm. So you end up with, with corn that would be similar to the kernels that you'd make popcorn out of. Okay. Then you take those kernels and you put them in water and you boil it. Um, and then you make the kid drink that water. <laughs> uh, it doesn't have to still be boiling. Right. You, you cool it down. Then they drink that 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 corn water, mm. uh, and that's supposed to help the itching from the chicken pox. Interesting. Yeah, probably because you're so busy vomiting on this <laughs> gross tasting corn water that you're not thinking about how itchy you are. Um, and then there's the one that's specific for babies. So this is for newborn babies. Like it's supposed to be really newborns. Uh, so like say, kid in the first couple of weeks of life. Okay. Uh, when they get thrush, you know, like that white coating on the tongue. Right. Then uh, what you do is you take a diaper. That the baby is peed in, <laughs> and you wipe it inside the mouth. <laughs> you rub that all over the tongue. You scrape out that thrush. It's supposed to make thrush go away. <laughs> Maybe it's like the baby's so afraid of getting another diaper stuffed in their mouth that they consciously will the thrush to receive. That's amazing. I've, I mean, we always hear about how, like, in this day and age, like, we want. We don't want single-use plastics. And here's a way we can reuse a soiled diaper. That's right. I mean, I guess if they were doing this back in, in Jamaica back in the day, and then it probably was a cloth diaper that they were using. So that actually would have probably made this a bit easier than one of these big puffed-up diapers I'm, trying to stuff it in a baby so they could suffocate them. I mean, actually, the, the corn story reminds me of a Chinese thing, actually. I didn't mention it earlier, but one of the things that Chinese people do is you take rice. So instead of corn, you just take like the the uncooked grains of rice and you stir fry that with a little bit of, I guess you just heat it up and then you cook that cooked rice. It's like hot rice with water. So you end up with like yeah. a rice water, right? And if you drink that, like that's supposed to be healthy for you. So the moms are supposed to drink this rice water throughout the first month of life. You're not supposed to drink plain water. Again, I guess like okay. it's in keeping with not showering, right? You just don't come in contact yeah. with plain water. So, right. so here's a question I have for you. And this, this, this one came up when we had kids, and especially with our first kid. And yeah. it's not a Chinese thing, but this is just like a thing that a lot of parents wonder. Like, you know when you have a newborn baby and their neck is like really supple? So their like yep. head is just basically flopped over because they can't lift it up, right? So we had this thing where like, like a lot of like the grandparents and and ourselves too, they were very worried that something bad would happen to the baby if we didn't support the neck at all times. So whenever we yeah. held the baby, we would hold them and then have to prop up their neck 
right? So that yeah. holding the head up so they look like they're in like a like an anatomical position, right? <laughs> and then yeah. you'd get into this thing where like, which is fine, like like we all want to be in an anatomical position as much as we can, but the yeah. baby is sometimes sitting in a car seat, right? So like when we had one kid, there would be me driving the car, it's medical dad, and then babies in the back, and next uh, to the baby in the back would be somebody else. Like there's always a third person in the seat next to them. So if the baby yeah. falls asleep and their head crinks to the side, someone's there's hand is just holding it up, right? Sometimes <laughs> for two hours, right? So with my oldest daughter, that's what that's how she was raised, with someone holding her head in case she stopped breathing because her head was crinked to the side. <laughs> and then we were like, this is kind of crazy. When we had our yeah. second kid and we ended up having to put two car seats in the back seat, there's yeah. no way that my daughter could reach over and support my son's head. So we just <laughs> let it be like, he just had to survive. Yeah. He just had to find a way to survive at that point. <laughs> well, I, I certainly uh, get it. How uh, sort of nerve wracking it is that babies have these loose floppy necks. Mm -hmm. And, you know, as, as pediatricians, we do like certainly encourage people to like, support their baby's neck when they're handling their baby. Mm -hmm. um, but that said, for how loose and floppy those necks are, uh, you never see cases of just regular babies handled by regular folks who just come in with their neck snapped. <laughs> right. It's you know? supple like, for a reason. It's not going to snap. But, that's right. but you have heard that sitting a baby in a car seat and letting them sleep in a car seat can be dangerous. Like that is a that is I don't that's not a myth it's online I mean maybe it's a myth right so what's the deal uh, well, with that right like so there's this whole paranoia that okay we are driving our kids around because we want them to fall asleep once they fall asleep yeah. we're afraid to keep them there because they might die right so then someone has to hold their head up the whole time I think the whole thing about not letting them sleep in the car seat is meant to be like not to put them to sleep like in the car seat where you're not supervising them right. Like that you would sort of say, uh, instead of putting them in their crib at night, I'm just putting them in their car seat and leaving them there. Uh, what, what does it, how do you supervise someone that's asleep? You, you put a mirror under their nose so you can see if they're breathing still. But the, the, the idea is supposed to be if you're sitting in a seat and you're curled up, then you might block, obstruct your airway. Right. right? Um, and then not have the strength to, to do something about right. it. But isn't that, so, isn't that the same thing we're talking about? Like if your head is crinked over while you're asleep in the car? Yeah, I'm just saying that you know uh, when you're when you suffocate in your sleep uh, because your airways like uh, suddenly get secluded, you don't just silently drift off to sleep and die. <laughs> uh, so you know, like uh, if you were actually in the car with your kid and periodically looking in your rearview mirror, then you'd be able to notice if the, if the baby is off, you know. <laughs> Um, like people drive around with babies all the time. You don't have babies constantly just dying in the car seats. In fact, if someone came into the hospital and their baby was like, uh, like blue and unconscious and stuff like that. And I said, what happened? And they said, nothing. We just went for a drive. <laughs> <laughs> and then I look back and, he, and this happened. I would be highly suspicious of that family. <laughs> Indeed. I'd be like, you know, anything could happen. You know, maybe they had a seizure or something we didn't notice, but uh, I can ask you a few screening questions. <laughs> Okay, okay. I see what the point you're trying to make is. You need the baby to be supervised, is what you're saying. So having another person yeah. in the backseat is a good idea in this situation. Uh, yeah, it's similar to the baby sleeping on their back. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm not saying that you need to... S I, I'm not saying that parents always need to have one parent in the backseat with the baby. Mm -hmm. um, but I, that's I, better. I think okay. I, that the closer you are, the better. I guess there are there's obviously some advantages to being next to the baby. But... Uh, uh, 
you know, I do f- like these families where uh, the husband and wife haven't sat next to each other in five years because some parent always has to be back there with the kid. Like that's that's there's no need for that. <laughs> well, <laughs> not unless your kid has coming from the dad with four kids. I'm sure you're not sitting next to each and every one of them in the car. <laughs> no. No, the cars. The cars is that time for me and my wife to get to talk. <laughs> as long as you can reach back an arm to swing around where the kids are, then that should be fine. All right. I mean, okay. I know we're really running out of time, but I have some good questions, some actual myths that I want dispelled. Okay. All right. How it. much of what a mom eats ends up in the breast milk? Like I get asked this frequently, right? Like, mom ate a bunch of mangoes, and now the kids having a bit of eczema two days later. Is that a thing? Uh, so I guess the the short answer is yes. The stuff that's in your breast milk, um, like the stuff you eat, does end up in your breast milk in a way that can affect the baby. Okay, so it can trigger um, an allergic reaction, for example. That I would say is actually uh, high, pretty rare, unless we're talking about cow's milk protein intolerance, which we sometimes conceptualize that as an allergy. Okay. Um, but uh, like having anaphylactic reactions to, to stuff that's in the mother's breast milk, that would be really uncommon. Mm-hmm. But uh, I mean, your breast milk is, you know, like just like everything else in your body, ultimately it is created by the food that you eat. And so from that point of view, everything you eat does to some extent and like well, the potential end up in your breast milk. Well, that's like saying like your blood comes from the food you eat too, but that's not really the case exactly. Does the quality of the f- of the milk change fundamentally based on the diet of the mom? Like if she's eating a lot of spicy foods, is that going to do something to the baby? Is, are they not going to like the milk because the milk will be a little spicier? Uh, the babies will always eat the milk. Uh, like one of the things you should know right off the bat is that baby's palate is not distinctive. Uh, that's why early on you can get babies to eat this formula that when you smell it, it's like putrid. Uh, <laughs> True. It's very fishy. <laughs> Uh, yeah, like the babies will not be have that discerning a palate in that way. So uh, you don't really have to worry that like, oh, my baby doesn't feed well because of the, the food I eat. Mm-hmm. Uh, but no, there is some truth to the idea that, um, you know, a mother might eat like, you know, I ate a whole bunch of like like tomatoes. And yeah, I think I can tell that it has an effect on my baby or like I drink a lot of caffeine. Then, yeah, your baby's going to get some of that caffeine, too. Um, mm. uh, again, with the cow's milk protein. You know, right. when, we, when I talk about like, you know, these babies are having uh, sloppy mucousy stools mm-hmm. that have blood in them. And you're explaining to the family how it's a milk, cow's milk protein tolerance. And they're saying, no, it's impossible. My baby doesn't drink formula, so they're not getting any cow's milk. And you're explaining, no, no, but the uh, when the mom eats you know, dairy products, some of the proteins get, that ends up in their breast milk. So if it can happen with that, then there's no reason it can't happen with other with other things as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just caution people about blaming every little thing they see in their baby on what they happen to eat earlier that day. Right. Do you have anything else you want to add on this episode about newborn care and some of the wackier aspects of it? Uh, well, I don't want to draw things out and make them too much longer, but I think uh, some of the take-home messages from what we talked about already is that uh there's a lot of different wacky things that you hear about people trying uh the ones that we talked about today for the most part uh are not likely to be dangerous um and some of the ones that we talked about today have at least a theoretical reason why they might work Mm -hmm. so if you have some traditional thing that that you want to do then you know talk to your doctor about it as long as it doesn't sound dangerous then we don't see any reason why you can't go ahead and do it (laughs) 
Unless it's eating the placenta, that just sounds disgusting. <laughs> Although Dave can, Dave does have a recipe. <laughs> On that note, we hope you learned something from this week's episode. And uh, we'll see you all in a week's time. <laughs> see you next week with our recipe for placenta <laughs> No, not that. <laughs> Good night, everyone. <laughs> <laughs>